Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Greetings to all of you. This summer we are discovering that Jesus is not just the one with the answers, but the Gospels primarily portray Jesus as the one with the questions. He can be called the great questioner. We have a wide array of questions that uh, Jesus asked in the four Gospels. So it wasn't easy to narrow it down to nine questions for our summer series. But I trust that the questions that we've been focusing over the last few weeks have been speaking to you personally. Uh, my prayer is that we as a church will realize these are not dull questions found in the dusty old book, but these questions are full of life. And they speak to us today with such relevance. The questions of Jesus challenge our assumptions and change our paradigm of thinking. Before we delve into today's question, I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church, those of us here at Central Campus, as well as those who are watching from our campus in Northwest Calgary, Bridgeland, Airdrie, and South Calgary. And I also want to welcome those who are connecting with us online. Let me set the stage for the question we're going to be looking at today. The very first uh, Disney movie I watched, probably, was The Lion King. Do you remember Mufasa, the king of the pride, and the playful little cub Simba? Uh, Mufasa gets uh, tragically killed in a stampede of wildebeest. And if you are like me and you cry when you watch movies, I'm sure you bawled at the scene. The entire act was plotted by Mufasa's evil brother, Scar. But Simba, Mufasa's son, has a role to play in this as well. It is his willful disobedience of his father that caused this tragedy. His defiance contributed to his dad's death. When Simba hovers over his father's dead body, he's sobbing. And you remember the words? It was an accident. I didn't mean for it to happen. But his uncle responds, the king is dead, and if it weren't for you, he would still be alive. Oh, what will your mother think? When little Simba realizes uh, what has happened, when his heart is uh, convicted by the gravity of his personal actions, he runs away to a far-off jungle to forget his past. He decides to leave his responsibilities behind and goes into hiding to start a carefree new life. Now, I know of many men and women in the Christian world who are like Simba. So many people start off their Christian life with such zeal and passion. But somewhere in the middle of the course, they get trapped in sin. A willful act of disobedience that brings such regret and shame that they conclude they are no longer worthy to follow Jesus. Because of sheer guilt, they get derailed from the path they've been on. They walk away from the mission and the plan God has for their life and go into hiding. It may be a single bad choice or a series of bad decisions that sweep people away from the destiny God has for their life. And like Simba, they start running from their past and from their life's calling because of shame. Unable to deal with the gravity of their personal actions, they decide it is far easier to quit. 
Now, over the years, I've done numerous baptisms here in our church, and it is one of my favorite things to do as a pastor. But sadly, I know that some of the people I baptized who promised that they will follow Jesus all the days of their life have now stumbled in their discipleship journey, and they've gone far from God. You know, it breaks my heart to say this. Spiritual failures are all too common in our church world. Every now and then I run into people when they find out that I work at a church, they will say sheepishly to me, oh, I used to attend church. I once went on a mission trip. I grew up attending Sunday school. But it is obvious that they are no longer living for God today. Something happened that halted their spiritual journey. Maybe that's you. You once had a passionate, vibrant walk with Jesus, and then you made some bad choices, dated the wrong person, followed the wrong crowd, went to university and you couldn't stand the peer pressure. Maybe your career became more important, or you got hooked on to the sinful pleasures of this world that are incompatible with your faith in Jesus. And now, you are derailed from the path of following Christ. You have stumbled in your discipleship journey. If that is you, I want you to know that you're not alone. The apostle Peter, who was one of the most prominent disciples of Jesus, had a similar experience. When he was under pressure, he denied his relationship with the Lord. He had a major spiritual failure. It derailed him from the path of discipleship and it threatened to rob him of the destiny and the plans God had for his life. Unable to cope with his actions like Simba, Peter decided to run from his past, away from God's call for his life. But Jesus would not let him go very far. He took the initiative to restore Peter back. The truth is, every one of us have failed in some way or form in our spiritual lives. We all have denied Jesus, if not with our words, certainly with our actions. Maybe we've fallen into sin, or it's a failure of courage, commitment, or faithfulness. We've said things we shouldn't have said, did things we shouldn't have done. Now, when we are overwhelmed by the regrets of our spiritual failures, when we are repulsed by our own sinful actions and we hang our head in shame, at that moment, Jesus has a question for you. The focus and intent of this question is not to condemn you, but it's to restore you. If you have failed as a Christian, and you're wondering, can I come back to the faith? Will I even be accepted after all that I have done? Jesus has one question for you. Do you still love him? We're going to look at John chapter 21 today. So I'm going to ask us to stand as we read our text from John 21, verses 1 to 19.
Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we will go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples uh, did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Father, would you open our eyes that we will be able to see the depth of your grace and your deep unconditional love for us, that even those of us here who are battling with spiritual failures will know that you love us unconditionally and that you long to restore us back to you. We pray, O oh God, that you will kindle our hearts with your steadfast love, that we will be able to love you in return. So come and speak to us in the power of your spirit. Minister to us individually, just as you ministered to Peter. But we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Amen. You may be seated. I need to give you some background information in order to understand this text that is so rich in meaning. A lot had happened prior to this day in the beach. When you read the Gospels, it's obvious that uh, Peter was the most vocal of all the 12 disciples. Peter had his spiritual highs. He was the first to make a historic confession of faith at Caesarea Philippi. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. When many people turned away from Jesus because of the cost of discipleship, Jesus asked his disciples if they too wanted to leave. And it was Peter who responded, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter boasted that even if everyone else disowned Jesus, he never would, even if he had to die. You can count on me, Jesus, if there is anybody who is invincible to temptations, it's me, because that's how much I love you. Steve Farrar, in his book, uh, Finishing Strong, points out an interesting research about pastors who have had moral failures. Without exception, all of them believed, it could never happen to me. It could never happen to me. Do you know when we are the most vulnerable? When we think I'm beyond this temptation, that's when we fall prey to it. Peter, who thought that he was so strong in his faith that even if everyone else would fall away, he never would. This man who made such audacious promises would fail big time, fall flat on his face. His entire world would just come crashing down. Jesus had been arrested and taken to the house of the high priest for trial. And there, Peter would be questioned about his association with Jesus. And Peter's response was shocking. I don't know him. I've never met this guy. Don't know what you're talking about. Three different times that night, Peter denies having any relationship at all with Jesus. He even cursed to show that he was just a fisherman and not the religious type with pious verbiage. Peter's denial of Jesus was not just a slip-up. This was a total reversal of discipleship. When the rooster crowed early that morning, Jesus looked directly at Peter. And Peter had his Simba moment. He ran away in shame not able to come to terms with his own actions. How could he, of all people, do something like this? Jesus goes on to be crucified. Peter is uh, nowhere near the crucifixion scene. He had acted selfishly and saved his own skin at the expense of his faith. Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead. And at the tomb of Jesus... The angel's words to Mary Magdalene was, go and tell my disciples and Peter the good news about my resurrection. Peter is just being singled out. Now, this is called grace. 
And Jesus made a couple of other resurrection appearances to his disciples. And he commands them to go to Galilee and wait for him. So this now brings us to our text in John 21. While the disciples are waiting in Galilee to meet with Jesus, Peter is still battling internally with his doubts. He couldn't forgive himself. From his point of view, he had been disqualified. It was time to turn in the badge. Overwhelmed by the weight of his failures, Peter was hard on himself. So he decided to go back to fishing because he concluded his ministry career was over. He says to the other disciples, I'm going fishing, and they too want to join him. Now, there's a difference of opinion over whether Peter's decision to go fishing was a return to his old way of life, his former profession, or is he just fishing to kill time? My personal view is Peter was indeed going back to his old fishing business. He was crestfallen. He doesn't see himself doing anything significant for God's kingdom. That chapter of his life was closed. So Peter wanted to go back to what he was used to, fish and make money. And why do I believe this? A text tells us that they fished all night. If this was just to kill time or if it was for hobby, why labor so hard? They were toiling with all their strength because this was their, their first day back at work and they desperately wanted to do well. But they caught nothing, a graphic portrayal of barrenness. And the reason they caught nothing was to teach them and us today that when we do something that is contrary to God's will for our life, at times God will frustrate your plans. You will not see the results that you had hoped for. This is God's way of getting your attention. At this vulnerable moment in Peter's life, Jesus comes looking for him. Look at verses 4 and 5 in John chapter 21. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. Jesus is standing by the shore, and he asked the tired guys in the water, friends, haven't you any fish? Now, the Greek word shouldn't be translated friends. It's more a reference to children. It can be translated boys. Hey, boys, how's fishing? And they had no idea that it is Jesus who's speaking. It's still very early in the morning. The light is dim, and they don't know that it's the Lord. So they respond, well, no luck. We've caught nothing all night. And what does Jesus say? In verse 6, he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. An incredible miracle unfolded right in front of their eyes. They caught such a big haul of fish. And here's the evidence that uh, fishermen wrote this story because they counted the exact number of fish. It came to 153. 
You know, the last time I went fishing with a couple of other people, we caught one fish. A 153 is an extraordinary number. The catch of fish was uh, symbolic of the missionary task that lay ahead of the disciples. The disciples now realized that they had responded to none other than Jesus' voice. Now, why is this miracle significant? If you remember in Luke chapter 5, you see an identical miracle at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This was one of Peter's first encounter with Jesus. For on that night, Peter had fished until daybreak with no success. And Jesus told Peter to go back to the sea. And he grudgingly obeys Jesus' voice, and the end result is a great catch of fish. And do you remember Peter's response that time? Peter says to Jesus, Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. I am not the kind of guy that you're looking for. Jesus tells Peter, I'm precisely looking for a guy like you. You've been fishing all your life. Now I want to use you to become a fisher of men. Peter was called that day to be a disciple and an apostle of Jesus. Now Jesus recreates the same miracle. Because Peter, after his denial experience, once again felt that he was a sinful man whom God cannot use anymore. He is battling with his failure and feeling unworthy of following God's call. Jesus simply brings the memories back to the time when Peter received his first call. And he was symbolically communicating to Peter, I still have a task for you, Peter, to fish for people. I still want to use you in a powerful way to impact the world. Before we get to the question, do you love me? You need to understand our text is not just highlighting our love for Jesus and making that the requirement, but it is primarily about Jesus' love for us. It was Jesus who reached out to Peter because Peter was too wounded to take that initiative on his own. And I tell you, that is the same today. Jesus is the Savior who comes seeking for us even when we are sulking in our failures. He extends restoration. He lends a helping hand when we are stuck in the mire and muck of our sin. This is love that will not let you go. You know, we are not trying to win God's favor by loving Him. Our love is simply a response. The reason we love Him is because He first loved us. Never forget that. So on that night, on that morning, when Peter realized that he had responded to the voice of Jesus, he jumped into the water and he swam towards him. And I'm sure at that moment, all kinds of thoughts were racing on his head. What is Jesus going to say to me? How is he going to respond to my blatant failure? Will he even be willing to talk to me? 
or is he so ticked off by my actions? Jesus reassures Peter and all of the disciples by making breakfast for them. Now look at verse 9. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Jesus is calming all their needless fears. And he's inviting them to join him for breakfast. The making of a meal is symbolic of extending relationship. Just as Jesus had eaten countless times with his disciples, once again he invites them for food and fellowship. Now comes one of the most moving exchanges you will find in the entire Bible. We finally come to the question that is the focus of today's message. Look at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Jesus still had some unfinished business with Peter. He was going to function here as a surgeon performing a painful but necessary surgery. This question will cut Peter open, but it was not meant to wound him but to heal him. Did you notice here that Jesus did not use the name Peter? Peter means rock. It's the nickname Jesus had given him. But now, Jesus intentionally uses his original name, Simon. Jesus is taking Peter back to the very beginning so he can start all over again. The slate had been wiped clean. And this is the question that Jesus asked him. Simon, do you love me more than these? What is the word these referring to? It could be Peter's choice of returning back to the fishing profession. Do you love me, Simon, more than the prospect of a lucrative fishing business? What is most important to you in life? Or this could mean, do you love me more than these other disciples do? The context actually favors this interpretation because earlier, if you remember, Peter had boasted in comparison with the other disciples that even if they were to disown him, he never would. So Jesus is making reference here in a subtle way to Peter's boasting. Jesus was not going to just dismiss Peter's failure or minimize the offense or play it down. That is not grace. Jesus calls it what it truly is. It was an act of failure. And in doing so, Jesus gets at the root of all sin, which is pride. Jesus wanted Peter to reflect on his failure and then reaffirm his love and commitment to following him. Interestingly, there's a charcoal fire lit on the beach on which Jesus cooks breakfast. Do you know where's the only other place in the Gospels where charcoal fire is mentioned? It's here in John chapter 18, verse 18. 
Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. It's at the house of the high priest where Jesus' trial was taking place on the eve of his crucifixion that Peter warmed his hands on a charcoal fire. Jesus once again intentionally recreates the whole scene and the setting, bringing all the memories flooding back in Peter's mind. Aromas have a powerful way of bringing back memories. The last time Peter was asked a question about Jesus in the presence of a charcoal fire, he denied Jesus three times. It is fitting that around the same charcoal fire, Peter is once again asked a question about Jesus three times. Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples do? I want you to look at Peter's response. This is really powerful. The last part of verse 15. Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Do you notice that Peter is not his usual self? This is a broken man speaking. His ego and pride have been totally flattened. Peter is not comparing himself anymore with others. He's not quick to declare his great love for Jesus. He's not offering any proofs or evidences, no lofty claims or promises about his loyalty to Jesus but he merely puts his confidence on Jesus' knowledge of how much Peter loved him. You know that I love you. Failures sure teach us to become humble, and humility is an essential character trait for anyone who wants to be used by God. Jesus asked Peter a second time the same question. This time he doesn't bring any comparisons. The first part of verse 16, again Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter's response is the same. He affirms his confidence in Jesus and not himself. And just in case we think the conversation is over, Jesus asked for the third time in verse 17. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Peter was feeling hurt. Is Jesus doubting my love? Is he turning the knife on the wound just to cause more pain? Why is he asking me for the third time, do you love me? How many times did Peter deny Jesus? Three times. Peter blatantly denied any knowledge of Jesus three different times. Now Jesus gives him an opportunity to reaffirm his love three different times. And that morning by the Sea of Galilee, the stain of the three denials was washed away. 
Peter's failure was public in front of everybody, and his restoration was public as well in front of the other disciples. And do you know something? All along, Peter expected Jesus to say, you have failed. You don't fit in my scheme of things anymore. I have better people than you to lead my church. But Peter heard words that morning that he thought he would never, ever hear again. Feed my lamb. Tend my sheep. In essence, Jesus was saying, Peter, build my church. Do you even know how much that would have meant to Peter? How these words would have blessed his heart? Because Jesus was saying, Peter, you are still my appointed leader. Your calling has not changed. My plans for your life have not changed. I'm still going to use you, Peter, beyond your imagination as a spokesperson for my church. Peter, today you have been recommissioned to service. In the words of Pastor Gordon MacDonald, when the beach scene was over, there were no longer any second-class citizens in the community of Jesus. It is significant to note that the only thing about which Jesus questions Peter uh, prior to reinstating him is his love. Everything else is secondary. In the height of our failures, when we are engulfed in shame, you need to know that Jesus loves you deeply. He longs to restore you. You are never too far gone. And out of this realization of his deep love for you is our response in return to love him above all things. Everything that we do in our Christian life should flow out of this love for Jesus. Loving Jesus is the only prerequisite for serving Him. Talents, gifts, abilities, leadership traits are all secondary in the church. What God expects first and foremost from every one of us is a pure, sincere love for Him. Whether it is doing your quiet times, helping somebody in need, leading or serving in a ministry area in the church. Let them be an extension of your love for Jesus. Now, I want to talk to those who have failed miserably. You may have failed, but if you love Jesus from the depth of your being, if your heart has once again been reignited and is brimming with love for Jesus, he is eager to recommission you as well. Jesus, on that morning, urged Peter to follow him to the very end, till his final breath. And that's what Peter did. There was no turning back. From that day forward, he ran his race till the very end. In many sports competitions, at the end of the race, you have, beside the names of the participants, sometimes these words, DNF. DNF stands for did not finish. 
for some reason, the person who was enlisted for the race couldn't make it to the finish line. It applies to the Christian race as well. There are many casualties. In the Christian race, the word, the letter DNF, is the saddest of all epitaphs. It is the greatest of all tragedies. Have you gone back on your baptismal commitment? Have you wandered away from your first love? You need to know this. It doesn't matter what you have done or how miserably you have blown it. The gospel of grace always issues a way back. No one is beyond recovery. And I'm speaking to somebody here today. You don't have to quit with the DNF tag attached to your name. You are not too far gone. God wants to use you as a trophy of his grace. So get back on and finish the race and complete it for the glory of God. In a few moments from now, we're going to be participating in the Lord's Supper. If you're sitting here today and you think God is just ticked off by your sins and he has turned his face away from you, you are wrong. The Lord's table is his provision for your failures. This is your lifeline. It is an invitation to all of us, even those who have failed, to return back to your first love to a living relationship with Jesus. And this invitation is possible only because of the cross. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for our failures and our shortcomings. He paid for our acts of shame and regrets. Because the price has been paid through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, you and I can be forgiven of all our sins when we repent. There is no failure greater than the failure to accept God's restorative grace. And just as Jesus invited his disciples on that day by the Sea of Galilee for breakfast, he invites us today to participate with him in another meal, the Lord's Supper, to communion with the risen Savior. If you have stumbled in your journey of discipleship, you have been derailed from the path of following Christ, I challenge you today to respond to this question that Jesus has for you. Do you still love me? If you can affirm your love for him from your heart, if you can respond to Jesus' offer of love, then even you are welcome to join in this meal of celebration because that will be the sign of your restoration that once again you belong to the faith community. I'm going to ask us to maintain a moment of silence and reflect on what you've heard today. I don't know where you are in your walk with Jesus. Jesus wants to know do you still love him?
So as we close our eyes, let us prepare our hearts to participate in the Lord's Supper. This time I want to invite the communion service to come forward. The rest of us, let's maintain a moment of silence. quietness of uh, this moment, I want to read to you from Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will He harbor His anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love for those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God does not treat us like the way our sins deserve, but he extends grace, his unmerited favor. It is this grace that sets the Christian faith apart from every other religion and worldview. What we see here in this table the bread and the cup are symbols. They're powerful symbols of the body of Jesus that was broken for us. The blood of Jesus that was shed for the remission of our sins. This is a reminder for us that your failures and my failures have been nailed to the cross. That we can be truly set free from our past because the price has already been paid. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our sins and our failures. So don't let guilt or condemnation to keep you from the stable. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you love him from the bottom of your heart, then you're welcome to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. If you are somebody who, have, who has stumbled in your journey of discipleship, this is God's invitation to you to get back on in the journey. And if you can make that decision today, then you are also welcome to participate with us in this meal as a sign of your restoration. Lord, we are humbled by your grace. Humbled to know that we who are so far off who are determined to go in our own way in direct rebellion against your commandments. That you came seeking for us. You brought us into a living relationship with you. What manner of love that has been lavished on us that we can be called children of God. Thank you, God, that we don't have to bear the weight of our sin and our failures that they have been transferred on Jesus, and today we can worship you as your children who have been set free. So we give you all the praise for your restorative grace. Even times when we stumble and fall, grace that reaches out to us. I pray, Lord, that this will be a reminder for us to follow you faithfully, 
to love you with all of our heart. For that is the greatest command. And I pray that our love will be expressed in our service, in our sacrifice, in advancing your kingdom and your mission. For you alone deserve all the glory, honor, and praise. We ask all this in the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter 